Lord, we thank you that your grace is our standing place. Lord, that we trust that you love us because you sent your son to die for us. So no matter how um, dark and bleak the days get, um, no matter how crushed we are by the sin that we struggle with, we know that you love us, that you have a plan for us, that you have redeemed us. And that plan will come to fruition because you sent your own son to die for us. There is no greater love that you could have demonstrated than that. And so we trust you. We give our lives to you. Placing our hope in you. And in the hope under your promises, Lord. Open your word to us today. We long to see glorious truths about you and things that you have done for us and will do. It's the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. got it. This morning, I'll be sharing from Romans chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Brothers, My heart's desires and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it's important to understand the connection of this to just the verses prior. Uh, Paul is speaking of the Jews. And again, chapter 9, 10, and 11 all have to do with the, the, the nation of the Jews in one form or another. Uh, chapter 9 pointing out that God's promises are solid even though the Jewish people are not following after God. And as a result, the blessings that He's promised, He has not been able to give to them Paul, you know, Paul points out that's not because God is lax or that God has failed. It's because the Jewish people have not succeeded in following after Christ. But as we will see before all of these three chapters is done, God's not done with the Jewish nation yet. And the promise that He has made, they will be completed. And yet in the midst of that, Paul finds a heart to pray for the, for the nation of, of Israel. And I think it's interesting when you think about Paul praying for the Jews because obviously some people say, well, wouldn't you expect this? He, being a Jew himself, you know, wanting to pray. But think about all the things that have happened to him in his ministry. In fact, the very reason why he's in prison uh, is not because, you know, it's because of Jewish brothers, if you will, taking a stand against him uh, in his preaching of Jesus Christ. And it's been no small effort on their part to eliminate Paul, to actually kill him if possible, and if not kill him, uh, at least imprison him and, and, and get him out of the, the limelight, so to speak. And so they've you know, done everything that they can, including at one point uh, stoning him and leaving him outside the city for dead uh, as, as a blasphemer. 
because he was preaching Jesus Christ. And yet his heart is for them. Uh, and, and, and he cries out for them on, on their behalf. And it's interesting because, in a sense, chapter 10 starts very similar to chapter 9. Look at, at chapter 9, the way Paul prays for the Jews there. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belonging the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, to them belong all the patriarchs and uh, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But I want you to know, he says, but verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all those who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he goes on to explain that God in His sovereignty has chosen who, you know, has his, his called His his bride, if you will, for his son, the bride for his son, out of a fallen world. And, and in the midst of that, not all Jews are called. In other words, being born a Jew is not a guarantee for anything. And I think we need to grab a hold of that because uh, we still have in our culture the, the idea some, in some cases that born, being born into a Christian family somehow takes care of our, our, our obligations with God. I know a number of young people who have no interest whatsoever in church who feel because they come out of Christian homes that whatever needs to be covered between them and God has been taken care of. It's a very risky place to be. And the Jews found that out. And, and, it's, and it's a reality for anyone who thinks that just your status of birth somehow guarantees you something before the throne of God. Here, Paul continues this prayer, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that, is the, that may be saved. For I bear them witness that they, and this is the picture here, they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. And by the way, I think this zeal is very legitimate in the sense of its realness to them. I guess you might have to call it sincere. Can you, you know, normally when we think of zeal, what do we think of? What kind of action words come to mind for the word zeal or zealous? Huh? Okay, radical. What did you say? Radical, okay. Active, you know, radical. Uh, someone who has is, is got a very, very uh, committed attitude towards something. Uh, it's interesting that in the midst of Jesus' disciples, there was a zealot. Simon the zealot. Uh, zealots had a very interesting position. The majority of the zealots uh, were anti-government uh, pretty much, anti-Rome uh, specifically, but anti any co, uh, co, ha, co, 
cohabitation, if you will, in the sense of, of peace between the Jews and, and the Roman occupiers. And so any opportunity they had to raise a stink, they did it. And one of the things they felt was totally incorrect was you never pay taxes to the pagan Romans, the bearers of eagles and emperors and false gods. And so they would have nothing to do with it. Now, obviously, Simon the Zealot probably must have had a change of attitude because Jesus uh, had a teaching about paying taxes and doing uh, giving unto Caesar what is Caesar, and, and, and he did not run off. Okay? So we, we can assume that there must have been something that changed in his heart about how he looked at that. But the word zealot just creates that picture. If somebody says that someone is zealous for their faith, and, and it's not always a positive picture that might come into your mind. Uh, you can have radical Islam, for instance, is made up of what you would traditionally call zealots. People who do not believe in any kind of compromise with any kind of situation. And, and as a result, everything that does not agree with them is a fair target. By the way, the Jewish zealots had no problems whatsoever uh, taking out Herodians that were Jewish guys who had sided with Herod. Didn't bother them a bit because they were blasphemers and not real Jews anyway. You see how that idea of zealot, we have multiple ways of looking at it. From a Christian point of view, is there anything wrong with being zealous for Christ? No, in fact, we're encouraged to be so. Epaphras was a man, uh, we, we mentioned him in the reading this morning. He, he, was a, he was a man who was considered zealous for the, the church. Okay, so I want to clarify this idea of, of zealous because the, the Jews, that the, the, the brothers, the Israelites the, that Paul was praying for, he says, uh, you know, they have a zeal for God. Paul knows about this zeal because uh, especially when you put it into the next phrase, a zeal for God, uh, uh, but one that is not according to knowledge. Paul was very zealous as a Jew. One of the th some of the things that we know about him we find in, uh, for instance, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, it says, uh, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And he looked, therefore, at Christianity as a cult, something that was deadly, something that was blasphemous and needed to be done away with. And he had no problem standing by and, and, and uh, holding the coats while Stephen, the first martyr, was executed by his stoning in Jerusalem. Acts is very specific about who was standing there holding the court. It was Saul of Tarsus, later called Paul. And so this zealousness... Paul understands this zealousness his brother had. And by the way, when Paul was being persecuted to the church, was he doing it unto God in the sense of his mind? Yeah, he was. He was sincere 
Sincerely wrong, but he was sincere. He tells us in, in the book of Philippians, in the letter that he writes there in chapter 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. It is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What he's talking about is Judaizers there, those who insist on bringing Jewish religion into Christianity. In other words, the idea was you need to be a Jew before you can be a Christian kind of idea. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. By the way, how do you become blameless under the law according to under that kind of a context? You, it's because you do all the right washings at the right time. You travel no longer than the prescribed traditional distance on, on, on the Sabbath. And if you need to travel further, you planned ahead and, 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 and planted, if you will, laid aside food and stores at that prescribed, at the end of that prescribed distance so you could say, oh, here's my home stuff. Now I can travel another half a distance again. Uh, you, you did everything by the tradition, the letter of the law that was really outside the law. It was as if the, the Hebrew people had, uh, the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, uh, the, the, the priesthood, especially the scribes of the priesthood, had created uh, a series of, I call it, yellow lights around the actual law. The law being a red light. Okay, If you break the law, you're already, you're already broken. You're in red light zone. You're, you're guilty. You're, there's nothing you can do. It's too late. So they created a cushion zone, a buffer zone, if you will, around the law, a whole bunch of, uh, of intricate laws that basically said, oops, I just got into the yellow zone, now I realize that somebody's brought it to my attention or I realize it myself or whatever. Oh, forgive me, Lord. And, and, and they never even got into the red zone. Okay. Well, the buffer zone became the law. And, and it became just as important to keep that part of the law and the Pharisees were the, the, the best at it. They were the best at keeping the law. And here we have a man who is a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, a Pharisee, and because of the word Hebrew of Hebrews, you could probably say a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning uh, a son of Pharisees, uh, tradition uh, uh, and, and, and inheritance in his own family uh, going backwards as far as Pharisees go. And so he, if anyone has a right to boast, he says, I have it. I persecuted the church of God violently. I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Notice he doesn't say he was zealous for the righteousness of God. For the traditions of my fathers. 
Paul says here, the zeal for God is without knowledge in Romans chapter 10. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Their zeal is real, but it's without knowledge. Paul, one of the things he prayed for was that we would have knowledge. In fact, the Scripture that Ted read this morning out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 talk about Paul praying that we would have spiritual wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God's will. And, and, and the, the, always this idea of, of, of opening up and understanding the things of God. And the key to understanding our salvation is to understand how righteousness works within the framework of God. The Jewish nation did not have the desire to seek the righteousness of God. Very zealous for the traditions of their fathers, but not for the righteousness of God. And so that says they were ignorant of it. Now we spent a lot of time in the book of Romans looking at the righteousness of God. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. But God's righteousness is based on His holiness. And through His righteousness, He establishes what it is to be holy. If you want to know what it means to be holy, do a study on the characters and attributes of God. And then understand that He calls all who follow Him, all the believers, everyone who follows Him, He calls them to be holy as He is holy. No exception, no no lowering of the standard in any way, shape, or form. Whatever you see in holiness and righteousness of God, He expects to, to, to be in us. Period. As man attempts this through keeping the law, he realizes that he can't make it. He's unable to approach God. Salvation is impossible for him. I am helplessly, hopelessly lost. By the way, at that point, the law has done its job. It has done what God designed it to do. Reveal His holiness. Reveal my need for His holiness and the reality that I can't get it because I have sin and sin blocks the way. I need a Savior. Period. I can't make it. I can't even say I can't make it on my own. I just can't make it, period. I need someone to reach down and pull me out of the fire. It's the way he describes uh, Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 as one he's a brand he, he has plucked out of the fire. Another way of, of Paul, uh, uh, David puts it, pulled out of the miry clay and set on the rock. I love that picture because I can relate to miry clay. 
I've been in situations where you can't, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a place where it's wet and, and, and you're trying to climb out of a gully, and, it, and no matter what you do, you just keep going back down, back down, back down, back down. Brad's not here this morning. He would tell you, you know, uh, Brad Chamberlain. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I needed help. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a, a branch hanging down over the edge and pulling me up, or, you know, and I'm getting out of the, the, the slippery slope there. And I suppose I could have gone down the other way and gotten lost, which would have been not unusual for me either. But, uh, uh, you know, the idea is that, that the, this pit means it's, it's surrounded. When you say this miry clay, it means the slippery clay is all over. No matter what I do, I slide back down. I cannot get out. And then he says, I waited on the Lord. He heard my cry. He reached down and he plucked me out of the miry clay and he set me on the rock. The rock is always Jesus Christ. He set me on the rock. And now he put a new song in my mouth. And I will sing of what God has done. And people will fear the name of God because of what he's done. You know, not because of what I have done, not because of anything of me, but because of what God has done. That's the position that the law brings us to. When its work is really done is when man is broken and says, I can't get there. I'm dead. Isaiah hit that point. Isaiah chapter 6 says, he says, oh man, I'm undone. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm in the presence of God. I'm a dead man. There's nothing I can do here. The angel reaches over and takes an ember from the, from the altar of God and cleanses his lips. He realized, first off, <laughs> Isaiah couldn't approach that altar to get that ember. If he could have, he couldn't have grabbed it anyway. It would have been too much for him. I mean, no matter how you do it, you, know, you see, this is the way God works. He gets us to that point where we realize we're broken. We're men of unclean lips. We're women of unclean lips. We need His help. We need His hand to touch, reach down, pluck us out, however you want to put it. All these, these pictures that He has given us. And over and over and over again. As a result, the Jews have no excuse. This is something that is out of the Old Testament over and over and over again. And the law has done its job. Man's only hope is the Savior, the Anointed One, the One that God has called His Son. And even in the Old Testament, it calls Him His Son, His King of Kings. You know what happened when Paul came to this point? Now, understand, you know, the road to Damascus and all of that, I don't, you know, I'm not going to get into that as much as when Paul finally fully understood this. And it may have been very quickly tied to, the, to, to that day. I think within the next two days or three days, he grasped fully this picture. Everything I have ever worked for has no value. How would you like to come to that conclusion? To be probably in your 30s, mid-30s, just having the right to speak as a Pharisee and as a, as a person in the synagogue, as a man, because you have to be 30 before you can do that. And to be listened to and having had one of the best teachers there was in, in the time of, the, of Judaism, uh, to be your teacher one-on-one. -on -one. 
He had it all. And as he lays there blind, he has a time to wrestle now with its value. You know what his conclusion was? He makes it very clear. Going back to Philippians chapter 3, he says, Now, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, worth of knowing Christ. Knowing. See the word knowing? Knowledge, Christ. Something about there coming back in, creeping into this picture. Jesus, my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And most everybody has heard enough sermons on this that they know that rubbish is a polite word for what's really there. We can use the word dumb. Manure. You can have sincerity, zeal, and not enough. It's not enough. It requires God's truth. Righteousness of God, the righteousness that saves, comes through Christ. Now, like I said, this, the zeal in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when it's misapplied is when we have a problem. Zeal for Christ is good if it's based in the knowledge of God's righteousness. It comes through faith, not through works. It comes in His Son's works for us. The Gospel, the good news. At that point, when it says that God is zealous for us, the implication is, is that we are zealous for God. And the word zealous and jealous are the same words, by the way. And the idea of being jealous. God wants, doesn't want to share us with anybody, but we should come to that point where we don't want to have anything interfere. Because we're jealous for God. We, we, we're so jealous for God that we cringe when we hear His name used in vain. It doesn't mean we go out and thump somebody on the head Unsaved people are simply going to be unsaved. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to, you know, there's no requirement to do, but it should, it should still, you hear it, it should hurt a little. How many movies have I watched? I don't even want to go there. I'm embarrassed and, and, and when I think about it. You know, the bottom line is, 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 we become somewhat tolerant. We lose that zeal, that jealousy for God. So I don't want to emphasize in any way that the zeal is wrong. It's one of the things that helps us to stay in check and, and, to, and to cause us to pursue Him with an excitement and, a, and an enthusiasm. In fact, it's an amazing thing. Most of the time, zealousness is so rare in the, in the church in the Western world that we find somebody that's zealous for the Lord and we ship him off to Bible college because he's due to be a preacher or a missionary. Maybe he'd have been just a good person in the church, you know, but we're not used to what to do with those people, so, you know, plus they make us a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Still with us today in this idea of, of, of zealousness being kind of a negative thing, you know, kind of too excited. Be careful. 
Charles Spurgeon, writing in the late 1880s, he said, you can be raised in the church, go to Bible school and hear all sorts of sermons, read the Bible every day and pray, and still be ignorant of the righteousness of God. You can have all sorts of zeal for the good things that you've done and excitement for the good things that your whatever organization it is that you're a part of that does, and it could be even a church, and still be ignorant of the righteousness of God. Specifically, I quote from him, There are many who are quite ignorant as to the natural righteousness of God's character. They do not know how intensely He hates sin. Or how His anger burns against injustice and untruth. They have never considered an idea of how pure He really is and how infinitely holy He is. How intensely He hates sin. You know, there was a, a prominent move going on during the going clear back into the 1700s, but it was it was moving very strongly again in in uh, England and Europe and in the United States. It was just taking foothold again, called universalism. Everybody's saved. God is a God of love. He wouldn't send anybody to hell. There is no hell. Everybody will be saved. Nowhere will you find that in Scripture. You'll find the exact opposite, but you won't find that in any form. You'll find that, you know, wide is the path to destruction, narrow is the way to heaven. You'll find that many will come, but few will I mean, you'll find over and over and over again, you know, things that, that counter that. But this idea of universalism, and yet, and, 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 and so Charles Spurgeon was, you know, writing here how intensely he hates sin. You see, the universalism plays down the idea of God's intense hate for, hatred for sin. Because, you see, if, if God is all love and, he, and He's going to let everybody in, then what He did on the, on, on the Golgotha was pointless. What an insult to God to say that, that He's going to let everybody in when He paid a price for His bride. That's what Spurgeon was concerned about. In many ways, the modern ecumenical movement that was becoming predominant in his time and becomes, it became evident even more so in my lifetime, the World Council of Churches uh, are, fall into this category. Uh, they are zealous to do good works in, 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 in God's name, but they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They do not act in knowledge of God's righteousness. They act in, 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 in their interpretations of things and, and good deeds. And by the way, many of the things they do are great Feeding hungry people is a good thing to do. Clothing people that are unclothed is a good thing to do. God, you know, those are not wrong things to do. 
But when you do it with an attitude of, oh, but we don't need to present the gospel in the process, everybody will be okay. By the way, you know that that's what Mother Teresa believed? Zealous to do good works, but ignorant of God's exclusive holiness. Reserved for those and only those who come not through works, but through grace. Christ's work of salvation. God's path to heaven is a narrow path. It is exclusive. The way to His holiness is through His holiness. Brought to us through Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ takes care of the righteousness of God and He pays the penalty. He doesn't just nullify the judgment. He takes the judgment and pays it. See, that's the righteousness of God. God's righteousness couldn't be satisfied without payment in in the sense of, of, of penalty for sin. It had to be taken care of. Period. And God invested everything He is through His Son on the cross to accomplish that goal. So that we could say, Abba, Father, so that we could count ourselves joint heirs with Christ. Every time we take communion, we acknowledge this. Every Sunday, this time of the service, when we come around the table, we acknowledge this truth. We we are subscribing, if you will, to, to Paul's concern here. We're wrestling with that understanding of the knowledge of God and His righteousness. And desiring to grow in our understanding of it and grow in our desire to embrace it. And to grow in our zeal to represent it. Even in the most quiet places in the quiet times where no one else is around. I'd ask the ushers to come, pass the communion out, and hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share it together.